It's Veterans Day. It's a special day, uh, and it is a great opportunity to thank uh, the men and women who have served our country. Today, we've got Jake Wood, Marine, author, and uh, founder of Team Rubicon, and he is one of the best, man. He is awesome. So you want to stick around for that. But first, we'll hit a little bit of football. We're going to talk about teams getting written off too soon, Bucks, uh, and we're going to talk about the Saints ceiling, as well as this new football uh, playoff idea, just in case shit really hits the fan in the NFL. 16 teams. How do we feel about that? Wednesday, everybody. This is the Green Light Pod. I'm your host, Chris Long, and I want to wish everybody who has served our country a wonderful Veterans Day. To the listeners, again, that is not Memorial Day. Memorial Day is not Veterans Day. They're very different things. Google it. If you've had trouble in the past, thank a veteran today who served. Appreciate y'all, guys and girls. Especially want to shout out our water boys vets. Uh, I know that we have some, uh, some of our listeners have been involved with my clean water initiative. Um, and you know, we bring a lot of folks together to fight for people's right, people's access to clean water, which is such a basic dignity that we take for granted here in this country. We bring athletes together. We bring fans together. We bring, um, entertainers together, but my favorite role player, so to speak in that whole equation has always been our vets. And that whole thing started by me, like cold calling uh, Nate Boyer, who I'd never met in my life. He's a Green Beret, um, played football at Texas. It's a Longhorn and uh, played briefly with the Seattle Seahawks. And he's also really is the dude that had a conversation with Colin Kaepernick and kind of gave his perspective on the protests and Colin listened and, um, you know, I, I don't know if that altered his path. Evidently it did as far as like he was sitting and then he took a knee because he thought it was more respectful. So like that's Nate and he's an incredibly empathetic, hardworking, um, charismatic dude. And he, and he loves service. And I saw something on him circa 2000 and maybe 14. I don't know. It was one of my last years in St. Louis. We were camping in Oxnard as a team. I was at some really nice hotel because Jeff Fisher had us traveling good. Stan Kroenke had us traveling good and I'm watching TV. And this is like the off night after we got in this huge knockdown drag out, like bar fight on a field with the Cowboys that like spilled over into the fan section and shit. Everybody was just exhausted. So I stayed in and was watching sports center and they did this great piece on this guy, Nate, Nate Boyer, you know, and everything I just said about him was coming through in the piece and just his background in being in a lot of places that we were trying to serve in the fight for clean water. I saw this and I was like, holy fuck, dude, I don't know what I need this dude to help us with, but he's got to help us. So I hit up Jay Glazer. Um, he does a lot of work with veterans. Uh, he does a merging veterans and players operation out of Cali where, um, He's basically uniting athletes and veterans to work out, you know, kind of fellowship zoom calls during COVID right now in isolation. I've been on zoom calls, Jay's zoom calls where there's 60 people 
20 of them were NFL players, former NFL players, 40 of them were vets. There might be like an MMA fighter in there. Like it's crazy. The, the bond that some people have formed through Jay's uh, deal out of, uh, out of Cali, their MVP and Nate's been heavily involved. So once I found that out, I cold called Jay, Jay hooked me up with Nate me and Nate talked for like three hours and I'm telephobic. Like I hate talking on the phone and that's probably to my detriment. It could probably get a lot more done if I just got things done on, on the phone and didn't try to text it all out. Um, but I, I, I talked to a stranger for like three hours and that was Nate Boyer. Like I don't talk to people on the phone for three hours. We hit it off, man. Love the dude. And he was kind of like, well, what got you into Tanzania? What you got, what got you into the region? Well, I told him I went and climbed Kilimanjaro. So Nate said, why don't we bring vets over to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? We can bring amputees. We can bring uh, vets who are struggling through the transition. We can bring vets who are successful right now and just want to serve. Like we can bring football players and vets together. And Jay Glazer's talking about doing this MVP thing. So it kind of all dovetails. And five years later, we have drilled a number of large solar powered wells thanks to in large part guys like Nate Boyer and all the veterans that he's been able to recruit on that side of things while we brought the football players to the equation and the athletes and that sort of thing. And I can honestly say we've done a lot of good work, but the highlight of my work in the clean water space has been summiting Kilimanjaro a few of these years with uh, some of our nation's finest. And so, um, you know, seeing Kirstie Ennis being the first female above the knee amputee to summit Mount Kilimanjaro, 20,000 feet, you know, seeing Elliot Ruiz, uh, fly Eagles fly birds fan from Philly, um, who, you know, gets to the top and, you know, he's crying and he's saying to himself, I heard him. He wasn't being dramatic. I'm not supposed to be here. Like those are, and I'll, I'll say it because we fucking got it on, like somebody got it on video. <laughs> so I'm not like doxing Elliot for getting emotional at the top of Killy, but like those are moments that I didn't cry after the Super Bowl. You know, the bond, you know, that, that you share with somebody when you do something like that is great. So, um, you know, I've gotten emotional a couple times up there and our vets are the, the entire reason because they are so motivated to continue service and, uh, and I appreciate all their hard work. So that's a, a bit of a special shout out. Any vet listening. Thank you. And to continue that shout out, congrats to Freddie. Uh, Freddie's one of our conquering Killy vets and he's, uh, he's now a dad two times over. Also happy birthday to James King. Uh, James had a birthday this week my lifelong buddy and uh, a guy I grew up with who said, you know what? I'm going to go climb Killy with my friend for good cause. And he did it. And uh, it was pretty amazing. It was awesome. Um, so today, very fittingly, we have um, Jake Wood joining us. Jake Wood is a Marine. He is the founder of team Rubicon. And now he's an author. Uh, his book is out today. It's called once a warrior. And, uh, he was also a Wisconsin football player. He would make sure I pointed that out. I'm going to ask him about that at some point during the interview. It was funny that like Joe Thomas, he always tells the story that Joe, Joe Thomas took his job. <laughs> I mean, that's totally fucked. I mean, that is just fucked. You show up to campus and you think things are going well. And then this guy, Joe Thomas rolls in. I'll ask him about that. Um, but 
team Rubicon is to me the most, one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. You know, I'm not easily inspired. You know, I was never one that read the signs on the wall and went out and played harder or anything like that. Like, I think a lot of that motivational shit is stupid. I think motivation is kind of inside you and, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to create it for somebody else. I was like legit inspired to do better and be better. When I saw Jake Wood talk at the ESPYs, I met him the day of the ESPYs in an elevator and, uh, we hit it off. So of course he downplayed this when I met him and had a beer with him, but like what he was there at the ESPYs for, which I learned a lot more about when he was on stage with that commanding presence was team Rubicon. Okay. It started back with the earthquake in Haiti, like about a decade ago with only a few volunteers. And it's a disaster response kind of super team of veterans, civilians that are on call on duty all the time. There's a hurricane here, there, they pick up and they go United States around the world. Um, and they're, it's described as the, their, their role is to prepare, respond and recover from disasters and humanitarian crises. So these guys are like kind of drop of a hat. They're there and they're there to help. And even in COVID times right now, um, they're all over the country and hurricane season has been nuts. And, you know, Jake will tell you about it, but they are out getting it done. And, you know, for them, there's no, Hey, it's, it's a pandemic. Hey, it's, it's a really bad hurricane season. These people don't ask questions. They just go and they help. And, uh, I think it's pretty admirable. And obviously a lot of other people have been moved to go join the fight because what I said was a couple of volunteers, the first trip out to Haiti, it's 130,000 folks right now that they have volunteering for them. So the book is out again. It's once a warrior and we'll have Jake Wood in a couple minutes, but I want to hit some football before, uh, we get to Jake. The one football thing that I will talk about today is, uh, it's the playoff deal, right? 16 teams in the playoffs is kind of an option three. All right. I'll break it down for you. Option one is obviously that all the cancellations we've had thus far kind of work out and we don't have enough meaningful reschedules from here on out to tip the scales to where we need to go to option two, uh, which would be building in a week 18 for everybody to get their games. in. the reason that it's interesting now is that there's no more bye weeks coming up. And so we're kind of out of runway for them to just push games like off into the corner. Like we'll deal with that in a little bit. There's no more like space for them to deal with that in a little bit. So the possibility of, uh, option one, not working out is higher. Um, especially if you consider everything that's going on right now, a hundred thousand cases around the country, pretty much every day for a week. Now you had 56 cases in the NFL last week, 41 of them were staff members. I'll talk about that in a minute, but that's a lot of cases. And, you know, the NFL is looking around. And to me, what this says is we need to get our shit together. Option three, if one and two don't work out, is this 16 team playoff scenario. So option one, get it done in phase normal ish season option two, build in that extra week to get things done that, that we still need done. Option three, uh, would be the 16 team setup. 
the reason I think this is significant, as I mentioned, is that this signals that a, a league that hasn't said shit about anything scheduling wise for like months now had a meeting and was like, we need to get our ducks in a row. That just says to me, they, they, I don't think they feel like option one happens. And once you're in option two, option three is imminent. Okay. I think there's, there's a decent chance that this happens. I'm not saying like it's more, more likely than not, but the way things are trending around the country right now, we're kind of back in March. There's States talking about going to phase one. I know Virginia's, I thought I heard today, well, it wouldn't change anything for me. I'm not saying that insensitively. I don't get out a lot. I have the luxury of not getting out a lot. I don't go out to eat at restaurants, that sort of thing to each his own. But like phase one, it sounds like would be more like hey, restaurants at certain capacities, et cetera. Things are changing around the country. And uh, I think the owners are looking around and saying, like, we got to be ready uh, to build in some contingency plans here. Now, the way this would work would be, you know, like they, they wouldn't change the seating. Everybody that's in now would be in as discussed this offseason. So the new playoff rule is in effect. Don't worry, Eagles fans. When I first read this too, I was like, man, are they just going to like throw out division winners and go like winning percentage? Fuck, we would deserve it, I guess. <laughs> but like still, the Eagles are still going to get in if they they handle their business and win the East, okay, for, for, for the Birds fans here. What they would do, it sounds like, is tack on two more wildcard teams. And at first I was like, damn, there's going to be some really bad team in the dance. It's actually not. This year there's a lot of middling teams. Um, if this happens, you could see four NFC West teams slide in if the, the Niners could get their shit together. Like in the AFC, uh, you could see fun teams like the Dolphins. Like everybody's dangerous this year, more so in the NFC than the AFC. Like the NFC is anybody's game, but the depth that this would yield in the uh, AFC, it doesn't bother me. Like if this is what it takes to get the season in safely, this is a real possibility. And I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, man. Like it was already going to be a new playoff deal. This thing would only make it more interesting and hopefully we don't get there, but I got a feeling we're going to be flirting with option three, staring down the, the barrel of option two, which is a week 18. How many games do you have to get canceled? I have no idea. And also I think a big question that ownership knows is what happens to teams when they start not caring so much, we're approaching a juncture in the season where teams are going to start to realize like they're out of it. Some teams have known that for quite a while. I do want to say one thing about the jets, uh, guys like Frank Gore, older guys on that team. I was watching the game two nights ago and I was thinking to myself, like, God bless them. They deserve some sort of, sort of an award to know. Like if you're young, you're just in a blender. You have no idea what's going on. If you're older, you've been at this a while, you're cynical, you know what really bad looks like, and you know what like like a living hell relative to an NFL season is like. These older guys, a lot of them, their careers might start might be over soon. A lot of them might have careers that are cut even shorter than they would be if they didn't play for the Jets because nobody's career, you know, is trends up for having played for the jets this year. Like it's, it's going to have a net negative effect on your career for the guys who are handling it with class there. And that includes like taking care of COVID protocol. I think they should be commended and I'm not even fucking around teams like the jets have been out of it for a while, 
but there's going to be some teams here real soon that are like, okay, it's over. How are they going to handle like the protocols? You would like to think they'd be professionals about it because they're getting paid. And I know it's not a good situation. I know this is a tough situation. I know the players that opted in had to consider what if I opt out? Is that going to hurt my earnings in the future? Are pe- teams and people going to hold a grudge against me? I'm kind of in an impossible situation, but now you're in the situation you're in. I would hope that you'd finish strong. But clubs know this and owners know this, that you're going to be dealing with, like, maybe if a team's got three wins in December, that nightclub looks pretty good. You know, like people come home for Christmas, people come home for Thanksgiving, big family gatherings, like it's going to become more of a challenge. And I think owners know that. And I think that's why these contingency plans, which were long overdue are here. And a lot of that's because we don't have any more wiggle room. One thing is 41 staff uh, and 15 players out of that batch of 56 positives last week. What that tells me is, uh, you know, and they say a certain amount of that 41 staff are front office. I do think that you're going to see some front office people get popped. A lot of teams are like, they're almost like two different buildings as far as like, you know, if you play for the Patriots, nobody in the front office comes downstairs. Like nobody. And like, depending on the team you're on, there might not be much interaction. So I think the further removed you are from like the money maker, which is the players, the more lax you might be, but the closer you get, you need to be careful, right? Because not only do coaches provide great value as far as like finishing this season and leadership and every week you need coaches to call plays and and get people ready. But like, it's also the fact that coaches could die from this dude. Like this is the most important part of it to me is there are dudes who are in the building in close proximity with players. And if you're a player, I think not only do you want to think about, you know, keeping yourself safe um, and respecting the fact that you've put in all this work to this point, but also like your, your actions, albeit in a really fucked up situation that you didn't really have a choice, but opt in depending on who you are could actually really hurt somebody. You know, we, 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 you know, if you're younger, if you're healthy, we don't know what the long-term effects of this thing are, but you know, that probably if you're 23 and you're healthy, you can get this thing. You're not going to drop dead. If you're 60, if you're obese and 60, if you're not in great health and you sit in meetings all day, crunching film and doing that sort of thing, like, and there are coaches with underlying health conditions. I mean, Ron Rivera, fuck dude. Like if you're a player, you got to consider that. And you're also trying to finish the season because you put in so much work and yes, it's a messed up situation, but you want to finish. So I would think they're going to consider that the one consideration on the 56 number is that some of those front office folks are kind of away from football. And I think there's going to be a lot of holdups, you know, like this week in Pittsburgh, you've got COVID like contact tracing um, flags where I think big Ben didn't, test positive for COVID. No, he was, he was in close contact with somebody, I believe what constitutes, you know, close contact. I'm sure they're going to be very careful as they should. And, you know, Ben's out of practice for five days. I believe I could be wrong. That's a big deal. Even if he plays on Sunday. So it's going to get weird right now. And uh, it's also going to get weird more importantly around the country because we've got rising numbers of cases and it's almost like the, the NFL and these NFL players didn't get the memo that the COVID, right? This is what I keep hearing was going to just stop after the election, just stop, disappear. Maybe COVID's waiting on the recount. Just thought of that. Fuck. It was right in front of me. 
Saints Bucks. The only thing I'll say about this, um, listen, that was an ass kicking. And I told you how personally I took it because of my involvement in that game from a business perspective, we're too emotional in general. So I'm not going, I'm not going to overreact to the bucks loss, like how bad they lost. They've lost twice to a division rival. They're probably going to have to see them in the playoffs if they want to do anything. And that's the troubling part. When you're on a team that loses twice to a team in the division, you fear seeing them in the playoffs. You know, I think the onus is more on the team that's lost twice than the team that's won, won twice because, you know, uh, the embarrassment of losing to a team three times in the same season, don't know how many times it's happened. But I'll say this. One of the reasons you can't write the Bucks off, 2018 Patriots won the Super Bowl. They lost 34 to 10 to the Titans. 2014 Pats lost 41 to 14 at Kansas City. A lot of people remember that 14 game. I think it was a primetime game and the Patriots just shit down their legs. I mean, that felt a lot like that game last night. But the 2014 Patriots, they had the Tom Brady in his prime, Bill Belichick Patriots. Like, that's not supposed to happen. So I know we were watching like the 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 new experiment of Brady at 43 and a bunch of new cast members and that sort of thing. And they, they're gonna be a good football team. Okay. I know we freaked out and we were probably like, that's the worst loss ever for a contender. I mentioned 2018, the Pats led by Tom Brady, blown out by the Titans, 2014, that Kansas City game. After that Kansas City game. Bill Belichick was asked in the presser if he was considering making a fucking quarterback change. Somebody told me that I got to go back and look it up. So take that with a grain of salt, but I believe it. 2012 Ravens, 43, 13 to the Texans, 2011 giants, 49 to 24 saints. And that was week 12. That's late in the season. 2007 Giants, 41-17 the Vikings. In 2006, the Colts, 44-17 to the Jags. So those are all Super Bowl winners, and those are their worst loss. Okay? That felt really ugly the other night. And I, I, I have to go look at these games or whatever to just, just to gauge if, if they were uglier or if they weren't. But you can't write the bucks off because of a terrible, terrible night. You just can't. What concerns me more is the fact that something about the Saints has got the Darth Vader grip on these guys right now. But there's another reason not to overreact to a Bucks loss, okay? Besides everything I just listed and the historical precedent of Super Bowl teams having really bad losses. We just did it with the, the team on the other side of the field, right? We killed the Saints like three different times this season. Like we just overreacted to the saints and we just got smacked in the mouth over it. So I'm not going to then not apply that lesson. I just learned with the bucks this crazy season, but anyways, dude, like we just did, did this thing with the saints and I was guilty of it. Stop this shit. We have to stop this. The media, I hate like including us. Yes. I'm in the media now. Our media has like run out of space, like sports media in the nineties and the eighties. And I was just a kid, but like, fuck, it's easy to extrapolate a narrative had space to breathe and you weren't pressured every day to make a new determination about a team. Like by Sunday, we've asked the same question 15 times about a team. We've run out of things. So we need new topics. Are the saints done? Are the bucks done? I don't think overreacting is a new thing, but I just think we've squeezed 
you know, everything we can out of the, the, the week in TV and in podcasting. And I, I, I'm guilty of it. I've been on shows where they're like, all right, we're going to talk today about are the bucks done or are the saints done? And you're by virtue of having to answer the question, you're forced to make a determination. Maybe we shouldn't be making these determinations. Like maybe we should just give it some fucking time and let it breathe, especially in a season like this. So I'm not going to write the bucks off based on our loss. Um, also, by the way, the, you know, I said this the other day that not writing the Seahawks off for doing exactly what we know they're capable of doing, which is to give up a million yards. Okay. They also have an easy schedule the rest of the way. So they're going to be just fine. They're going to be in the dance. What happens from there? I don't know. Same thing with the bucks, but as far as the saints are concerned and man, Sean Payton's a great coach. They're a very good football team right now. Kay Adams on, on, on NFL next this week, you know, she was on it. She thought they're the most complete football team in the NFC, that sort of thing. I will say this though, that's not saying a lot in the NFC this year, cause there's not a lot of good defenses, which is also why I think the Seahawks will be okay. I mean, there's not many good defenses anyway. So, and the worst thing we've done is, and we said this in the media this year, will the teams that have continuity that have been together the longest, they'll win the day. Well, in August, what team fit the bill? The New Orleans Saints, right? Things in New England kind of blew up. Um, you know, San Francisco was banged up, especially early in the year. And you weren't sure if that was a flash in the pan thing. Who were the teams? I mean, Kansas City, they're repeating. But again, it's like it's hard to repeat. Who are the teams with continuity outside the world champions that you know, you're going to fear this year. And New Orleans is one of them. So we knew that coming in and then they played bad for a couple of games and we forgot it. And we made a determination based on a small sample size, ignoring the 10 year plus run of continuity we've had in, in New Orleans. And now I know he drew's older and that sort of thing. And we have to remember that quarterbacks ride the wave, just like position players. So as a position player, there was always something that was hurt, whether it was my my quad was torn and nobody knew about it. Or like I had an ankle sprain or you had fluid in your knee. Like that is the cost of playing a high contact sport. Try doing it when you're 40 something years old and you're a little dude getting slammed to the ground. Like Drew Brees is built like the mailman, dude. He's an athletic mailman, but he's built like the mailman. If I just went out in the street and slammed a mailman on the back of his fucking head, the mailman's going to be out for like a week. Drew Brees has to get back up take another snap, get slammed to the turf again by a bigger dude, and then like throw the ball perfect for all the people on ESPN. Like there's going to be three week spans where he maybe doesn't feel great. And I said that, but I also kind of wrote him off a little bit. Like I kind of like, and you know, he's not going to be around a lot longer as far as the NFL is concerned. Uh, you know, father time is going to dictate that, but we should all give these teams and quarterbacks because we do it with all quarterbacks a little bit of time because we ignored the big sample size and opted for the small sample size with the saints and with the bucks, man, they played good for like three weeks. They got kind of famous off the green Bay win. And yes, do I think they're a good football team? Are they dangerous? Yeah. But we started to get really horny for the bucks dude <laughs> after like a two week span. And then we were like, how is this dynastic team not blowing out the giants? Well, I don't know. We didn't think they were very good like a month ago when they lost to the bears. So we take the small sample size of the bucks and then we extrapolate based off no other evidence other than that three week span. So I'm not going to write off the bucks. I'm not going to write off the saints. I'm not going to do the sports media thing. There is no more space 
for content. So I think we get backed in these corners where every Monday we have to make a broad sweeping determination on a football team. I need to be better at that. Sports media needs to be better at that. I will fuck it up probably next Monday, but right here in this, in this moment, maybe it's because I've had time and it's Wednesday. I am not writing off the, the bucks and I'm not putting the saints in the Super Bowl either. Okay. All right. Saints are a really good football team, but a week ago we were all worried about their defense and Drew Brees' health. And, you know, is it, you know, they, they got everybody back healthy on offense. They're amazing. But the, the thing about the saints is the saints, in my opinion, have the most important home field advantage situation, maybe in the NFL. Okay. You could argue that green Bay might have one because of the elements Denver's not in the postseason, like, cause we're taking fans out of it. Doesn't look like we're going to have more fans in the stands, the way things are trending, take Denver out of it. Denver would probably have the best one because of altitude. I know it sounds silly, but I'm serious. When you take fans out of it, it's just about the, the circumstances, like the weather, the, the forces, you know, it could be an East coast, West coast thing. I don't know. New Orleans is very important because their quarterback, this particular quarterback, this Hall of Famer that you're going to need to make the throws in January doesn't want to do it out in the 30 degree uh, weather. Like that's kind of a known thing. That's and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way it is with Drew Brees. So don't do it. Um, don't don't put yourself in that position. This team looks fired up. They need to be. They still have Atlanta twice. And I know like a saint. Like if I had Cam Jordan on here right now, he's very outward about like being dismissive of the other teams in the, in the division. And I love that. But Atlanta is always a fucking dogfight, man. It always is. Um, and the saints in Atlanta, they don't like each other. And just last year, Atlanta was maybe worse when they kicked the saints asses. Okay. Like, I think Drew Brees had just come back and everybody was in a great mood in, in, in New Orleans. And I think they got beat up by Atlanta. So they play them twice. Still they get Carolina week 17 outdoor at Carolina and they have Kansas city at home. The other team I mentioned, not writing off Seattle, they got an easy fucking schedule. So really important home field in New Orleans. They have to take care of business. Not going to overreact without further ado. I am not overreacting when I say, that Jake Wood is a fantastic individual. And this is a really good interview. And I appreciate him, not because of me, it's a good interview because of him opening up a little bit. So once more, thank you to our veteran community. I almost hate saying thank you because it just feels hollow, right? Like I wish I could do something else. That's why we do Conquering Killy. So if you're a vet and you want to get involved with Conquering Killy, check out the website, waterboys.org. I'm not trying to talk about Waterboys all day, but this is the way that we've kind of gotten involved. And, um, also, listen to what Jake's got to say about Team Rubicon. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code GREENLIGHT when you sign up to get this can't-miss offer. DraftKings Sportsbook is insuring your Sunday bets up to $100. That's right, you bet and they cover up to $100 when you use promo code GREENLIGHT during sign-up. For a limited time, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. Bonus comprised of first deposit bonus and first bet match. Each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. So it is a privilege, uh, and I know he doesn't like being pumped up. He's a humble dude and an authentic humble dude. Not like fake humble. He's really actually a humble dude. To have Jake Wood join us here on the Greenlight Pod on Veterans Day. Uh, it's perfect and... 
boy, a lot has changed since we met at the ESPYs a few years ago. Jake, you never slow down. What's going on with you guys right now at Team Rubicon? Oh man, you know, 2020 has become such a, a meme for craziness and, and, you know, same holds true for Team Rubicon. We, you know, we had big plans for this year, a lot of strategic initiatives we were looking to launch. And like everybody else, COVID derailed everything for us, but we also saw it as an opportunity. So we've been doing some, some things we never really anticipated uh, ever doing before, you know, in response to COVID-19. It's like, we put 10,000 volunteers into food banks across the country to help with food support operations. We, we sent a hundred medics into Navajo nation to help uh, 3000 COVID positive patients there. I mean, like that's the type of thing that we never thought we'd be doing here in the U S you know, at one point we were helping to manage uh, a quarantine shelter for homeless populations in, in Las Vegas. Um, so it's, it's just been a wild year, but um, on top of it, the one thing we knew early was mother nature wasn't going to give a shit about COVID-19. So, you know, we, we started preparing our teams to respond to hurricanes and tornadoes and floods in a COVID environment. And, you know, lo and behold, in true 2020 fashion, you know, it's been the worst hurricane season in a hundred years. Mm. And, uh, you know, we've been there all along the way. Yeah. You guys started, I guess, after the, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, mm-hmm. your volunteer group or your, your gray shirt count as you guys call it, grew from eight volunteers to 135,000, which is, I think what makes you great. I mean, not just your heart, but your ability to mobilize people. And I think that, I mean, that's something that is really difficult to do from an organizational standpoint to inspire people to do things. Was there one like big catalyst for you guys along the way? Because I know if you're trying to build anything, it's gradual, it's gradual, it's gradual, but then maybe one big event or one addition to the team allows you to grow exponentially, or has this just been a 10 year grind? That's a good question, man. I mean, we, we've had a couple of big seminal moments or inflection points along the way. I'd say one was hurricane Sandy, um, you know, up to hurricane Sandy, everybody kind of thought we were flashing the pan and, uh, you know, nobody really wanted to take us seriously as an organization. And, we put all our chips on the table during that one and, and it, it paid dividends. You know, people still really started to pay attention to us after Sandy. The other one then was hurricane Harvey. I mean, you remember that. I mean, I think you were probably still in the league at that point yeah. in time. And uh, you know, just the outpouring of support from celebrities, athletes, you know, all across the country, it was such a huge event, you know, team Rubicon. It was, I mean, we tripled or quadrupled in size in the months following hurricane Harvey. And it wasn't just Harvey, right. It was like, Hurricane Irma in Florida, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, I, as with anything, right, like you're, you're presented with these opportunities and great organizations rise to the occasion and just like great teams rise to the occasion, you know, in moments of consequence. And we were able to do that, which I look back on with a lot of pride because the result has been that the organization's just scaled in a way that I don't think any of us really imagined five years ago. I think it's what you just said is really um, it hits home because I would like to think that our best and brightest and, you know, as Americans, if we have one redeeming quality that we want to lean into, it's looking at the worst of the worst disasters, um, unfortunate circumstances as opportunities to help each other and flip the negativity to guys, we can go make a fucking difference. You know, we yeah. can be, you know, you're, and you're a football player. I talked about it in the open. 
uh, you know, at heart, you, you played at Wisconsin and that sort of thing. I liken it to, Hey, when shits hit the fan on the field and it's a blowout, you want to be the person that stands out on tape. And they say, why is that guy playing so hard? That's a convicted individual. Mm -hmm. How do you inspire people in a time like right now or on the ground, you know, after a hurricane, um, to dig deep and be positive. I mean, just to have hope and to lean into our toughest moments. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's, it's how you show up. You talked about being that guy on tape who's playing to the whistle, you know, every play, every down, regardless of the score, people notice those things. Right. And, and, you know, if, so if you can, if you can show up in that way, every play, or, you know, in my situation every day, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is like, don't put your head in the sand. We always talk at team Rubicon about confronting the brutal facts of the situation. And so we don't shy away from just how bad a situation is. You know, we actually, we, we look at the sobering reality of a, of a situation. We, as leaders, we communicate about it. Clearly. We don't try to you know, kind of sand the rough edges of those moments. And I think people appreciate that level of honesty and transparency but then, you know, beyond that, then it's about demonstrating the competence that, hey, I may not have all the right answers, but we're going to figure them out together. And, and, you know, so taking that approach to it. And then finally, I mean, you talked about hope. I think hope is one of these really powerful tools, but hope is not a strategy, right? And so if, if your team sees you simply relying on hope without a plan, that's not very inspiring, right? So hope, hope isn't what's going to get you through. Hope is what you know, is a tool that you use in the execution of a game plan or a battle plan or a strategic plan. And so I think one of the things we did early in COVID was, you know, we, we told our team that this was going to be bad and they needed to brace for it to be bad. Whereas, you know, like other leaders, you know, across the country and some other organizations, they, they were kind of communicating that it wasn't that bad. So we, we embraced that brutal truth Two, We admitted that we didn't have all the answers. We admitted that we didn't have a playbook for how to, how to respond, but we told people that we were going to figure it out and we were going to get through it together. Like if you, if you can do those four things consistently, like people are going to follow you. And I think that's trust in leadership. I mean, you know, I don't want my leader to bullshit me. I don't want my coach to bullshit me. I don't want the person that I'm taking orders from or guiding me, you know, through a situation to BS me. So I think that rings very true. Um, you know, I know it's a tough one. I've been asked this before. Uh, assuming leadership roles on a football field is way different than doing what you do. But in your experience, if you got to start with one quality of a leader, what is that quality? You can only one tool, you got to pick that one. And then from there, it's, it's a crap shoot. Yeah. Uh, that's, that is a tough question. I, I, I think that it's, it's a tough question with one answer. And I think it's integrity. Um, you know, I, particularly in, the situations I've been in, the stakes were always really high. And you wanted to know that the person you were following had integrity and that they were going to put, you know, that integrity on the line above anything else. And one of the things I've seen since, you know, coming back from my tours in Iraq and Afghanistan is that that's actually pretty hard to come by. You have a lot of people who pay lip service to that. It's really hard to find people who will do that Consistently. And by consistently, I mean, like you got to bat a hundred percent on that one. Right. Right. Because people don't care about the 99 times that you made the right decision, or at least made the decision with integrity. They care about the one time that you didn't. Um, 
Yeah. You know, and maybe that's not as important in all walks of life, but I think in, you know, certainly on the battlefield it is. And, and it's funny because I often, I, I would pose this question to people when I were in, was interviewing them to, to join my team at TR, my, my leadership team. And I'd ask about three virtues. I'd say, Hey, you've got uh, integrity, judgment, and courage, which one's the most important and why? And, and honestly, I, there wasn't really a right or wrong answer. It was more about listening to them think it out. And if they, if they asked one, I'd always press on, they'd say, you know, like, you know, well, courage is, because if you don't have the courage to do something, it doesn't matter. I said, well, I've met courageous fools before. So what's the value of, what's the, what's the value of courage without judgment? I mean, that's not, not going to do much. I think those are useful thought exercises. When you're on the ground, you mentioned setting expectations. You, you mentioned it's bad. It's going to be bad this summer. Uh, it's going to be bad this fall, this winter. What is bad? Tell us, we know a hurricane is terrifying. We see video, we watch the news, but when you add COVID into the equation, how does that manifest in your operations, uh, on the ground? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been super complicating for us. Um, you know, and it ranges from, you know, we can't deploy any of our volunteers who are over the age of 65 because of the mortality rates for them with regard to the virus. You know, and that's a big portion of our volunteers. We've had a lot of Vietnam veterans who have been joining and, and they've been great, a great demographic wow. for us. Um, and so that's been challenging to re- eliminate their ability to deploy, but then on the ground, I mean, you know, you've got to get larger facilities to house your people because you've got to maintain social distancing while they're sleeping. You know, we're not, we're not, you know, we don't have Gucci, you know, uh, housing requirements, right? We're talking about people sleeping on canvas cots, <laughs> but now suddenly you yeah. can't pack them in like sardines. Right. And you know, right. you're talking about being in Southwest Louisiana in August, September, October, wearing a mask while you're hauling trees and debris and tarping roofs. Like that's hard shit to do. You know, the, there's a, there's a saying in the military that we've really tried to drive home this year. Cause I think it's so appropriate at least in the Marine Corps, you couldn't leave a forward operating base, like a small outpost without, as you're driving through the, the, what we called entry control point, there'd be a sign. It was you know, usually a, a plywood sign with spray painted uh, words on it. And the words were always complacency kills. And, you know, the, it was, it was this mantra that the Marine Corps had that, you know, complacency is what's going to kill you, not the enemy. Complacency might lead to the enemy actually killing you, but it was complacency that caused it. And, and how did that look on the battlefield? It was, it was not carrying out your night vision goggles because it was noon and you're supposed to be back by 4 p.m. before it got, got dark. Well, guess what? Like shit happens. If you got caught outside the wire without your NVGs, like you were up shit's Creek. You know, it was not taking that extra magazine of ammo to cut weight. It was, you know, whatever it might be, there's a thousand different examples. And the same thing happens in COVID, right? And we're seeing this play out all across the country right now with this third surge that we're seeing in the virus. It's because people are tired. People are tired of social distancing. They're tired of not seeing their grandparents. They're tired of wearing a mask. And the, and the reality is like, it's the complacency that's killing us. Cause we know, we know how to keep this virus at bay. The problem is, do we have the, do we have the discipline to keep it at bay? And that means staying distant, wearing a mask, washing your hands, like in, 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 so that's, that's the challenge for our organizations. We've put these people on the ground, hundreds of people in Southwest Louisiana. Can we ensure that they maintain that discipline in order to stay safe? And I'll give you an example. We've had 19,000 deployments across the country so far this year. We've only had six COVID transmissions among them. So that's wow. the level of discipline. 
And in, in, in many of those situations, we were like directly treating in a medical capacity, COVID patients. So, wow. That's, I mean, it's amazing. Some of the people in, you, you know, a lot of these volunteers are veterans. I feel like we, for a while, and maybe the narrative is shifting is like the way you think a veteran is, you know, a halftime thing or mm-hmm. a thank you at an airport or thanks for your service. Or I've talked to veterans who are like, I just, I want my mission to continue. Um, I, I want, I want, I want to be, I want to be utilized as the, the great tool that I am in this country. I mean, you, you want to thank me, direct me to how I can be of service and continue to be of service. Do you feel like what you're doing serves a very powerful purpose besides helping people on the ground? Oh yeah. There's no doubt, man. And we've seen it since the beginning. Um, you know, we have, we have thousands of veterans who, would tell you that their lives have been fundamentally changed for the good by serving with team Rubicon. You know, it's, it's, and it's what you said, it's, it's finding purpose. It's finding a mission beyond the one that they served in the uniform. And yeah. And like everybody needs that for a different reason. Right. I, I think the sense of purpose is a universal human need, right? Like football players when need it, when they, you know, when they hang up the cleats for the last time, you know uh, you know, parents need it. Like everybody needs purpose in their life. I think, you know, for veterans, you know, think about this, like they join the military during the most formative years of their life. They're usually 18, maybe they're 21 years old. And we give them a uniform and a rank and, you know, we give them a mission and then we send them overseas with this band of brothers and sisters. Like that's, that's hugely gratifying, especially for a lot of people who maybe don't always come from great backgrounds. Maybe they've never had a father figure. Maybe they've, you know, never been told that they're a value before. Maybe, you know, maybe the military was an escape for them, but then all of a sudden they get these things. And then at some point they, they lose it. Right. Like that's a huge void to fill in somebody's yeah. life. And so, yeah, we can fill that. Um, you know, and for some other, for some other folks, man, it's, it's about making sense of the world, right? Like you go to war and you go to war in like some of these places that we did. And it's hard to make sense of like, the world after you've seen a, a school teacher beheaded for teaching young girls, you come back and you're like, what the fuck, you know, how do I make sense of this? And so helping people in a context that is void of evil and simply good helps people to kind of restore some faith in humanity in a way that I think is really, really powerful. What's that void like? Because, you know, I talk to guys and girls who do Kelly with us uh, mm-hmm. for conquering Kelly and if they're getting in, introspective, it can sometimes echo the sentiment of a football player who's existentially in a crisis because I'm no longer a football player. Of course, mm-hmm. your stakes are way higher. It's way different. Nobody's comparing football to you know, serving in the military, but the camaraderie, the purpose, and it's all relative. When that rug swept out from under you, I think guys and girls uh, have an existential crisis that they're dealing with. What's it like because it's wild. You do some of the scariest shit while you serve, you know, like I, I can only imagine the adrenaline that's pumping through your head, the fears, the thoughts that go into your everyday life when you wake up and you're deployed and like, I don't know if you think, could this be the day or that sort of thing? When you finish, you would think you're safer, but I'm sure, do you feel safer or is that, that void just so heavy that you're like, how does that feel? 
Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you're talking about is like a crisis of identity. If I'm not, if I'm not a Marine, who am I? If I'm not a football player, who am I? And we see that in people all the time. Um, you know, I, I'll go back to my, my sniper partner was my best friend. His name was Clay Hunt. Um, he killed himself two years after we got out of the Marine Corps. And, you know, he had, he was suffering from post-traumatic stress. He got wounded on our tour together in Iraq. Um, you know, he started to really unravel a little bit when we were in Afghanistan working in a heavily Taliban controlled area. Um, and, you know, he got diagnosed with PTSD, but I think what really he was, what he was struggling most with was this crisis of identity. If he wasn't a Marine, who was he? And if he didn't know who he was, how could he have impact in the world? And I think, you know, I, I see that playing out for people a lot. There's a sense of adventure too, like you talked about, you know, climbing Killy is, you know, is one way to recapture that. You see, you see people try to recapture in a lot less healthy ways. You know, you see people hopping on motorcycles, you know, and, and racing down, you know, Canyon roads at 130 miles an hour because they want to feel that thrill of being near death and, and tempting fate. That's obviously a really fucking unhealthy way to approach, uh, you know, reintegration, but we see, we see that play out all the time. It's tragic. What about right now? Because COVID has to compound that isolation has to compound that. How do you check on your friends? You know, do you have a strategy? Is there chatter in, you know, I've been on, um, and I think Nate Boyer and Jay Glazer do a great job with MVP mm -hmm. merging veterans and yeah. players. And they have these zoom calls, which are terrific. There's like 50 vets on there. There's a few players scattered in there. And everybody's just kind of, you know, bearing it a little bit. It's a safe place to talk about how you're doing right now. You know, mm -hmm. that's probably, there's probably not enough of that anyways, pre 2020. This is crunch time, right? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we, we've tried to do it with, with team Rubicon. We've had what we, you know, we call them virtual firesides. Um, you know, one of the things that we've kind of had as a cultural, um, uh, tradition at team Rubicon or, you know, when we're out on these missions, we'll try to have like a, literally a campfire, uh, cause you know, we're out in some remote places and, and you see people get around this campfire and it's amazing what happens when people sit around a campfire, right? Like since this, yeah, the dawn of time, right? Like, like it, it's just like campfires, like unlock a different side of us. We, we like, we share stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let alone like every, every man on the planet thinking that they have like the secret to building the perfect one. Um, you know, like since we created fire and like the spoken word, humans have just wanted to sit around campfires and tell stories. And it's just amazing. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And so we've, we've, we've tried to, uh, we've tried to recreate that, you know, in a virtual setting and, you know, listen, it, it's, it's good. It's not the same but it's good enough. It's getting better. I think that one of the, one of the things that's, I think challenging, you know, so my unit, second battalion, seventh Marines has had at least at one point, a couple of years ago, the highest suicide rate of any battalion that had fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. We lost more men to suicide than we did to the enemy. And we, we lost a ton of guys to the enemy. Um, and the New York Times wrote a big expose about five years ago on our battalion and the suicide epidemic. And then that same writer just last month wrote a follow-up story talking about how the political discourse and uh, you know the, just the, the, the dialogue around Trump and Biden and all this stuff was tearing our battalion apart because these guys were trying to connect online in these Facebook groups that we have, but people were getting so 
divisive over politics that was actually ripping the battalion apart. And I just find that so sad. You know, people, people say, you know, hey, how do I think a veteran on Veterans Day? Can I say thank you for your service? Of course, you can say thank you for your service. You know how you can really make a meaningful difference? Make it worth, you know, make it worth it, right? And, and I think about what I fought for. I think about the country that I love. And I think about what I see playing out right now. And it's just, yeah, I'd do it again. Yes, it's still worth it. But God, I'm not just as, fuck, man, we can do better, right? And we have to do better. And so I think a lot of guys are just a little bit jaded about, you know, I spent all this time defending this country that's now ripping itself apart from the inside. That's tragic. How do you grapple with the concept of patriotism now? I mean, because it seems to be getting pulled in a million different directions and whether it's the meaning of the flag or like, it's just, I've, I've, and I, I don't have your background, obviously, where the, that flag means something different to you, but I grew up as a kid and a little bit of naivete, but I'm proud to be an American and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And I still am, but I'm, I'm proud because of the people, you know, I'm yeah. proud because of what we could be, you know, mm-hmm. and our potential and you've served and you mentioned that kind of, that feeling, that sinking feeling that maybe we're tearing each other apart right now. What is patriotism at this point in 2020? Yeah, it's a good question, man. I don't know. <laughs> that's I, I should have gotten that in the read ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah, that's, fuck. That's I, I, well, I just thought of it. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's crazy. I think um, I think the sen- I think what patriotism is has been warped, and I think that the war has been hijacked, and I think we're suffering from almost a fetishism with patriotism, and and we're putting all of these crazy litmus tests in front of people to determine whether they're a patriot. And, and, and you know, you, you mentioned like, you know, growing up proud, being proud to be an American. I, I, I am, I was growing up. I, I remain proud to be an American. Um, but I've also come to learn through my experiences the first time really in the locker room at Wisconsin, where I met guys from walks of life that I never could have imagined growing up in a small town in Iowa. And, and later in the Marine Corps, I've learned that my America was definitely not everybody's America, you know, and in understanding that, that there, that people experience America in different ways and in the promises that America has made to its citizens play out dramatically differently for people across this country, we should allow for different versions of what patriotism is. And the final thing I'll say just, you know, before letting you respond is, we shouldn't conflate patriotism with the ability or really the, the need to be critical of our country. It conflates the wrong word, but we, we, we should be able. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, we have to be critical of ourselves. What is veterans day? What should veterans day mean? You know, what, how should we celebrate it? How should we frame it? Wow, man. You know, I think, you know, I think it's, I think it's good to honor veterans and those who've served. Um, I think that that's an important place in a country that has an all volunteer force. I think, you know, one of the things that we have to realize is just how much of a luxury it is for a country 
of our size to have an all volunteer army. Right. I mean, that's, it, it, that's actually, I wouldn't say rare, but that's, it, it is a luxury mm-hmm. in order to keep it that way. We've got to do a better job of framing what it means to be a veteran. And so, you know, we have to win this narrative. I see, I see like today's veterans issues as a battle for the narrative, right? So the narrative is often, Hey, these poor men and women, uh, they came back, they must've suffered so greatly. We owe them so much. Um, and you know, some of them suffered greatly. Most of them did not. They all made a sacrifice, right? They all joined. They all spent time away from family. Some of them are, are, are horrifically injured, you know, I've got men that I served with, you know, a guy in my squad who lost three limbs and he's alive today, actually amazingly plays Paralympic ice hockey uh, on the U S Paralympic team with one arm, but that's not how we should frame veterans. I, I would prefer us to think about, okay, these are everyday Americans who made the decision consciously to serve their country. They went overseas because we asked them to, uh, they, they, you know, executed a, you know, a difficult mission with amazing, uh, you know, grit and tenacity. And they came home and most of them are stronger and better for it. Uh, we must take care of the ones who are coming home, hurt, injured, ill, and ensure that they can have the highest quality of life possible. But for the 95% of Americans who are coming back from these wars overseas, who are really, truly, I believe, stronger as a result of their service, how do we now ask more of them? How do we ask them to, to lead in our communities serve as, you know, that beacon of strength that we need. Maybe that bridge builder that can talk to both sides or the three sides or four, however many sides of America there are, because they've seen it all. They've gone to war with it all. I mean, that's what we need to be doing. You mentioned Clay Hunt. You're basically a brother to you that you lost um, to suicide. More veterans have died from suicide by suicide since 2001 than actually in active duty. Is that true? Uh, at least since 2011, I, I don't know if it goes all the way back to 2001, but it's a staggering yeah. number. Uh, you talk about all this in your book, uh, by the way, we have any, I, you know, I talked about it in the open here, um, with everything you've done in your life, you're also an author now, once a warrior, um, we'll get you the information on where you can pick that up. You, the listener, um, how do you go from a guy who's seen and done the things that you've done? And it couldn't have always been pleasant to an author, to somebody who's working in veteran advocacy spaces, to somebody who's met with Bush, with Obama, who the first time I saw you, you're in a suit in a fucking elevator in uh, L.A. And we I I look at you. I'm like, I know this guy. And you're looking at me. You're like, I know this guy. I thought you were a movie star. (laughs) How do you go from this guy who's caked in fucking sand and sweat and, you know, everything you've been through to you come out of the phone booth, like a, like a bureaucrat. I mean, you're not acting like a bureaucrat, but you got to dress like one and talk to them. How do you make that transition? Yeah. I, I'm still wondering sometimes myself, man. I, you know, I, <laughs> I look at my life, I look back at my life, you know, and sometimes I look back at the last 20 years and I, you know, there were a lot of tragedies, man. I mean, there were a lot of hard, hard moments. I lost, lost a bunch of Marines, a bunch of friends overseas, lost a bunch, including my best friend to suicide coming back. You know, it's, uh, you know, lost my dad at a young age and it's easy to, it's easy to think about all of those, you know, both those decades and, 
you know, get mired in the bad stuff. And then I think about, you know, all the amazing opportunities that I've had along the way as well. And, and, you know, when I, when I think about anybody's life, you know, life is really just a series of moments, right? And in every moment that you face, you're faced with a decision, like, you know, you can do one thing or the other. And it's, it's like the accumulation of those that get you to where you are. So when people ask me like, how did you, how did you leave the Marine Corps? How'd you come back from Afghanistan and start this company and write this book, do all these things? It's like, man, I honestly, so many, it's so many periods along the way. It was just survival. It was just waking up and, and, you know, figuratively putting one foot in front of the other. And I, you know, gotten lucky along the way on top of it. Um, yeah. but you know, frankly, I look back on my wartime experience and half the time I just breathe a sigh of relief that I even made it back alive, you know, veteran advocacy now that you're back and thank goodness you are, cause you're, you're, you're moving mountains. You know, you talk about veteran advocacy a lot. How can we better advocate for veterans? I, I've, I've asked you how we could better thank them, but when it comes to the rubber meeting the road in, in DC or at a government level, you have been in those meetings. You have met with some heavy hitters. If you could do one thing to change as much as you could, what would you do? Yeah, I, I think the one thing I would advocate for is to allow uh, veterans to repurpose some of their education, build benefits to dedicate one to two years to national service in a non-military fashion. So mm -hmm. we've, we've done a great job. We've passed like some really handsome benefit packages for, for vets to include really, really generous education bill, uh, benefits. And I think if we allow the cost that we pay, I mean, we're probably talking at least $50,000 a year worth of educational benefits for four years. So 50 K a year, if we just allowed a veteran to earn a living wage through a government grant, through a program that allowed them to not go to school. Cause maybe that's not really for them. They're not really quite ready to enter the, the workforce yet, but to serve in some meaningful capacity and make a living doing it. I, you know, again, going back to purpose being such a powerful driver of a positive reintegration experience, I think that would save lives and ultimately like make for an amazing return on the financial investment. What was the hardest part of this book to write that you really struggled, you know, putting <laughs> pen to paper and having the balls to just go? I, I would say two things. One, you know, the, 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 the people ask, Oh, how long is the book? I'm like 320 pages. Like, how did you write so much? I'm like, honestly, I wrote 500 pages worth of stories. Right. One of the challenges was figuring out which stories I wasn't going to tell. And so it was really hard for me to, to part ways with stories that were so deeply personal to me, you know, stories of moments overseas, stories of moments in team Rubicon where I, as they were happening or, you know, as upon reflecting back on them, I'm like, how can I not possibly include this story. Like it would be a disservice to that moment, to the people that were involved with it. So that was, that was the first thing. The second thing though, and this was what was really hard was, and it was part of the reason I wrote the book. It was really hard to come to terms with how I felt about the war, you know, like to actually process what, you know, a decade after I, you know, 13 years after my last firefight, like looking back on it, what did I actually feel about it? Cause if, you know, in the decades since my time in the Marine Corps, depending on the day you asked me, what did you, what do you think of the war in Iraq? Or what do you think about the war in Afghanistan? I, I would have told you, you know, I'd flip flop on that answer all day long. 
And so the process of writing it really forced me to just reflect on what it all meant. And to be honest, I'm not really sure the book actually answers that question, which I think is pretty revealing about just how complicated war is. Well, and when you're on the ground, you, you don't, you're not allowed to think about macro. Yeah. Well, it's dangerous to, you're allowed to, but man, it'll, it'll get you down a rabbit hole. That's not all that productive for staying alive. Are there moments, were there moments when you were deployed where, I don't know if you had mixed feelings at the time, but you know, your, your job is to encounter an enemy. And did you ever reflect on maybe some of the commonalities you might have with that enemy that's, you know, a couple hundred yards away or in a, in, in a building, or I, I don't know how you would frame it, but are you ever sitting out there and you're thinking, golly, we're, we're out here, we're out here shooting at each other. And maybe, maybe neither of us have thought about the macro. Yeah. That was actually one of those things that was there. Yes. The answer. Yes. There are a number of times. I remember the first time somebody tried to kill me, you know, a couple of days later, you know, quiet night, sitting on post, thinking about it and just thinking to myself, like that guy wasn't born evil. You know, we, we, we think about like, in, we think about the Taliban or we think about Al Qaeda and we think that they're, they were like, they were born 24 years old with a beard and a rifle in their hands. Like that's not how it works. Right. Most and babies so, were not. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, I, I remember th- sitting there thinking like, did this kid, when he was seven years old, a dream about playing on the Iraqi national soccer team. Did he imagine being an astronaut like I did or any of those other things that kids go through because he wasn't born evil. And that, you know, and then it just, that forced me to reflect on again, perspective and like, you know, going back to, well, there's two versions of America, like, what was his life like that led him to hate me so much that he would try to kill me? So that, you know, that happened a bunch. And then, man, I tell you what, when I was in Afghanistan, um, I was working in a sniper team and, you know, we'd every once in a while we'd embed with these local uh, Afghan national army guys and we'd have an interpreter. And there was one night, I remember we were sitting up on a rooftop. It was Ramadan and so these, these Afghans invited us to break the Ramadan feast with them. They hadn't been eating all day and they've made this cooked to this goat. And then we were sitting up there. First of all, they were all smoking opium. So like, that was pretty wild. It's my six man team. We're about to go out on this mission. It was like a big mission that night. And these guys had to like cover our insert and I'm sitting there watching them get high as fucking kites. And I'm like, okay, well our cover is completely blown you know, for, for this. Um, but, but during this conversation, we had an interpreter there and, you know, again, these were our allies, but at one point, um, one of the guys asked, you know, something to the effect of, you know, Hey, are you ever going to come back to Afghanistan? Like when the war's over, are you ever, do you think you're ever going to come back to Afghanistan? I'm like, yeah, you know, I, it was a, it was a question I pondered a lot. Um, you know, will I ever be able to visit these places where all I did was violent things and maybe take my daughter there someday in the future? to just explore it as a part of the world. And I don't know, but the guy said, you know, something to the effect of, um, you know, if you come back and you come back with a gun, we'll probably be enemies and I'll try to kill you. I'm just like, mm. Oh man. Okay. Um, you know, just, and it just got, you know, just gets you it thinking seems like about, there's a thin line of just we're good, but you know, it just could be way different next time I see you. Well, I mean, think about Afghanistan. They've been at war for a hundred years. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, country nations, empires have come and gone. They've beaten them all. We were no different. You know, we were just, 
the most recent one. And they were allied with us for certainly not ideological reasons, mostly economic. And those can disappear in a heartbeat, man. Will we always be at war as a country? Kind of seems that way these days, right? You know, and I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that most Americans realize how many uh, countries we are conducting kinetic operations in. Right. 365 days a year. South Philippines, Niger, uh, you know, Malawi, you know, places in South America, you know, it's low intensity conflict, but we have people, I mean, just like, remember what, what happened when the green Berets were ambushed in Niger, what was it? 18 yeah. months ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, Americans were shocked. How did, how, how did we not know our men and women were in harm's way? It's like, well, it's cause you've been out to lunch since 2001. Um, right. so what could, what, what could we do as, as people? I mean, it's a very macro question before I finish with some fun football shit, but well, what I mean, can we do is like, like, like the human race. If we, is it, just, is it greed that drives all this? Is it, is it fear? Oh. Like what, you know, it's such a macro question. I apologize for asking it, but I'm just, I think it's a lack of empathy. And I think it's our willingness to dehumanize populations. Right. And, and, and they go hand in hand and in this, in it, you know, you can look at that on a global perspective. You can look at that in America. It, it, you know, in the United States, which is going to hit closer to home for your listeners, it's really easy for us to um, say terrible things about, you know, people on the other side of a political argument or the other side of the train tracks, whatever it might be, because we have never made an effort to gain a perspective into their life, to understand their hardships, which by definition doesn't allow us to empathize with their position. And then when we get to that point, it becomes really easy for us to go one step farther and just to completely dehumanize them. And you see that playing out in politics today on both sides. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, both sides play into that. We can agree that it is an ugly fucking game. Yeah. On, on both sides of it, it's an ugly game. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and yeah, I just feel like uh, where there's power to be grabbed, there's always going to be self-preservation. It just sucks. And you wonder if it's ever going to slow down. Speaking of intense conflict, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Isn't that the, uh, the one where you guys get a, is it a bucket or an ax? It's the ax, right? where we get the ax. Yeah. Paul Bunyan's ax. <laughs> um, <laughs> hard right turn from geopolitical shit. Yeah. To, <laughs> to, uh, the big 10 football. I, I, I always, and the people listening heard me talk about your football background. I always, um, I always have people compliment the team or the, uh, the organization they hate. Do you have a compliment that you could pay the Minnesota golden gophers? Um, they're, it's very kind of them to have let us keep the ax for as many decades as we've kept it. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> I like that really, you didn't actually compliment. Hey, are you, are you on board with the whole boat concept there? Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty gimmicky, man. But I mean, Dude. listen, the guy's been successful. Yeah. If I was still playing at Wisconsin, I would say it's really cute. 
And when you did play Wisconsin, I guess the burning question for me was, I let people in on the whole Joe Thomas situation. Why does Joe Thomas hate the troops? Why, why, why would he do that to you? Why, why would he disrespect you like that and take, and take your job? I, I, I don't understand that. Well, he's un-American. I think we can agree he on that. He is un-American. He's, Joe he's, Thomas he's, is un-American. I <laughs> <laughs> was uh, fucked okay. up. I'll tell you this, man. You talked about you talked about when we ran into each other in the elevator uh, before the ESPYS, and and you look. You said you looked at me and I looked familiar. I looked at you and I thought, thank God I didn't make it to the NFL. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I feel when I watch DK Metcalf. I'm saying, thank God I'm not playing anymore. I see some of these fucking guys. So I'm right there with you. And shit, I did it for 11 years. Tell tell us the Joe Thomas story. How apparent was it immediately that he was uh, that dude? Yeah. So I, I remember, I, I don't remember if I was going into my, must've been into my junior year. And, uh, we had a guy that played before me. His name was Ben Johnson, uh, all big 10 player, you know, and he, he went on to the NFL and I thought, okay, like I'm, I'm going to compete for the starting job. Like I think, I think yeah. I can lock it in. And, uh, and my coach pulls me aside, uh, my offensive line coach during the summer. He's like, Hey, you know, this kid, we just recruited this kid, Joe Thomas. Have you heard of him? And of course I'm like, yeah, he was like the number one recruit in the country for his position. Everybody was talking about him. It's like, you know, Joe's, you know, finishing up some summer league basketball stuff, but he's going to be on campus. I want you to teach him the playbook. You know, I think we're going to give him a shot at the job. I'm like, whatever coach. Yeah. I'll teach him the playbook. Kid won't be able to compete. He's probably, you know, he was like a bean pole. He's like 235 pounds. <laughs> and, uh, so he, and he shows up on campus and he is, he'd been playing basketball all summer. He was, you know, maybe 235, 245 pounds. I mean, this kid ain't going to compete for shit. Give me a break. Two months later, fall camp starts. He's like 285. I'm like, okay, this is, this is interesting. Like three practices in, I'm like, God damn, you gotta be kidding me, man. Was, and at that point, man, I was just, I was just holding his water bottles for him. Um, and, and, and the one thing was, I'm like, I was the guy that knew the playbook inside out. So I'm like, this is, maybe this is my edge. This guy's probably dumber than a box of rocks. No, man. The guy's like a freaking road scholar on top. He's jacked again. He's back to his summer league basketball weight. Dude, dude. Well, he didn't look like that when he was, when he showed no. up, man. I mean, he hit puberty no. since then, but man, yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> about a transformation, man. The guy must be doing CrossFit or something. I don't know what it is, but he's jacked. Well, you would it know if he's be... doing CrossFit because he'd tell you 10 times in your first conversation. Like, oh gosh, come on now. I mean, like, <laughs> listen, and, and for the CrossFitters, I got some uh, mileage on, on these tires. I can't just be doing some of the shit that y'all are doing. Oh, it's just God, tell me about it, man. I actually play contact sports. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, not to leave on a, on a low note and uh, shit on CrossFit. We do like CrossFit. I just can't do it. Uh, physically, I can't compete. Uh, Jake Wood, man, I appreciate you so much, dude. I, I really, I know everywhere you go, people probably give you the business on, you know, what you're doing and how awesome it is. And and I've told you that in person before, but you really are in a dark time where we are all questioning kind of the status quo. You're somebody that I admire, man. So I appreciate you. And I give people their flowers, right? You're the fucking man, dude. Now I told you I'll I'll come down and join you guys one time. I will, when this thing clears up. Um, And I hope to get you to to Kelly at some point. I think we'd have a blast. So I'd love to, man. I would. And I appreciate everything you've done, you know, for the community. I I think at a time when, you know, uh, the NFL was looking for leadership, you know, at a community level, at a societal level, you stepped up and, and, you know, you did it for a long time and, Man, people take notice and a lot of admiration for you, you, buddy. Means a lot coming from you. Hey, everybody, go check this out. I don't read a lot of books, okay? 
you know, I'm not proud of that, but I'm going to go get once a warrior. Cause I know the author, uh, and <laughs> check out team Rubicon. Uh, they do amazing work. How can they help team Rubicon? How can they check out the book? Yeah. I mean, listen, if you've got any, any listeners out there, military veterans, first responders, we'd love to have you to sign up and join. Uh, just go to teamrubiconusa.org. And for anybody else, uh, listen, man, it's been a tough year. We've, we've spent a lot of money responding to 300 communities across the country. If you're thinking about making a tax, uh, you know, a year end tax deductible gift, uh, you will make your donation go far. Uh, you know, we are, a, we are a charity. There's a dozen things more important to us than money, but they all cost money. And then, you know, last but not least, you know, go, go buy that book. Hear the amazing stories of these, uh, these Americans at team Rubicon. I promise you, you won't regret it. Jake, thank you. Be well. And uh, best of the family, man. We'll catch up soon. We'll get a beer when this thing clears. All up. right. I'll count on it. Okay, buddy. Thanks, ma'am.